Welcome to the Writing to Get Business podcast, where you'll get tips to expand your writing skills. Every week, you'll hear tips and strategies to support your writing. Pat Iyer is your show hostess, a ghostwriter, editor, and author who has written 48 books. Sit back, relax, and listen. Here's your hostess, Pat Iyer. Hi, this is Pat Iyer with Writing to Get Business. I brought on the show with me today, Joanna Brandy, who I met through being involved in the National Speakers Association, the Florida chapter. Joanna is the author of three books. All of them have a unique title, and we'll talk about her titles and the subject matter in this podcast. Welcome to the show, Joanna. Oh, thank you so much, Pat. I'm quite excited to be here. Let's focus on your first book. I know that you have written three, and they all are ones that have an intriguing piece in the title. The first one, let's talk about what is the title of that book, what does it cover, and what motivated you to put it together? Well, that one has a whole big story attached to it, and um, what motivated me to put it together was the fact that I was not going to fulfill a book contract I had for a previous book. When I left New York, I had a contract uh, with a very prestigious Washington publisher to write a book about holistic business. And he was looking for a book approximately 375 pages long. Hmm. And I had never written a book before. This gentleman knew me well and was intrigued by my view of business. Well, I got down here to Florida, and it was a terrible experience. (laughs) I never felt so incapable in my entire life. I had 10 crates full of papers that I had brought with me to work on the book. And after a while of struggling through it, I called one of my remaining clients, and I said to her, Dominique, if I write this book, will you read it? And she said to me, how long is it? I said, well, it's supposed to be 375 pages. And she said, nope, I don't have time for it. Mm. So then I asked an intriguing question. I said, what would you read? And she said, if you write me a book on all the stuff that you teach, but there's only one idea on a page, and that idea doesn't refer to the page before, then I would read it. And I was shocked. I said, you want me to do toilet reading? And she said, I wouldn't quite call it that, but... Yes, I want you to do something. I'm really busy and I want you to do something that I can read no matter where I am. I can pick up a page. I can learn something from it. At that particular time, I had a client uh, called Lakewood Publications. So I went to my client because I knew she published books like that. And I said, told her the whole story. And I said, would you be interested? She said, in a heartbeat, give me a title. And so I came up with a title, which was Winning at Customer Retention, 101. 101 ways to keep them happy, keep them loyal, and keep them coming back. And right out of the gate, she printed 10,000 copies, which 25 years ago was a lot of copies. Yeah. A lot of copies today. It isn't. Yeah. It feels Mm -hmm. today, it feels like the numbers are so big. But it was very well accepted because Lakewood Publishing also had other 101 books. So that taught me a valuable lesson right there. And it also set the tone for everything else I would do after that, 
because in my speaking engagements, I would pull out 29 ways to do this or 15 ways to do that. And those were always my most popular engagements because people like that fast fire. If I don't get one idea, I'm going to get another. I don't have to think about it too much because she's going to come out with another one next. And that really set the pace for everything I did after that. So although I didn't get that first book written, I am very grateful to the client that told me what she would read as opposed to what probably would have just stroked my ego a little bit. Mm -hmm. I'm intrigued by a couple aspects of your story. The idea that you got a request for 375 pages is unusual. Of course, I've written several books or, and been the editor of several books that were huge, huge um, hardcover, two-volume books. That used to be a style that was very popular. Textbooks of that nature had no limitation in terms yeah. of practicality. Uh-huh. <laughs> in fact, I would say you needed a carpal tunnel brace to pick up some of my books. <laughs> when you went back to the publisher, were there any repercussions of saying, you know, no, I don't want to be involved in this contract to be able you to know, back out really, of that? There really, weren't, there really weren't because he and I were both in the same industry. We knew each other very well. We shared the platform very often. We had lunch whenever we were in the same city. So we had that kind of relationship where once I said to him, look, this is making me absolutely crazy. And he said, well, if you don't want to do it, don't do it. Write something else. And I was, you know, it was wonderful because I, I, he gave me, he gave me the, the idea to write a book. I wasn't headed in that direction. So he gave me the idea to do it. And I collected materials for a long time. And all of those materials that I literally 10 crates of magazine articles and notes and things like that, that formed the basis of a 30 year long business. So Mm. I'm so grateful for every step along the way, because had I not been thinking about that, I would never have really dove in. And one of the things that I did when I was writing that book is I created a survey because a very good friend of mine, uh, who was also a consultant, came to help me. And she challenged me. She said, what right do you have to write this book? I went, ooh. She said, no, really. You don't have a whole lot of experience in this area. You have ideas. So we together, we wrote a research survey that covered all of the things we thought would... Um, would would constitute a holistic business. And then I hired a telemarketing agency and uh, did 200 and some odd interviews with the telemarketing. It was a half hour interview and got a ton of information. So, you know, it was a lot of work and it cost me a fortune, but I think it actually formed my my whole business having people interact and they loved the survey. People would call me back and say, that was amazing. Thank you so much. It gave me like a framework to think about my business. So it was a gift in disguise. All of it, every piece was a gift. Wow. The book that didn't get written, the surveys that did get done, that formed the basis for you to be able to say, my research shows that, (laughs) and then you could quote your research and the findings. Interesting. Yeah, it's really interesting. And to this day, I just found it again. Uh, I met a young man who is, uh, does a lot with databases and we were having lunch while you were still able to eat lunch with people. 
And I tossed the idea out to him and he said, boy, I'd really be interested in getting my hands on that survey. So it will get to him because it took me a long time to dig it up. It was not on my computer. It was on paper. Oh, my goodness. I remember paper. <laughs> you remember that? Well, my, yeah. my office is still covered with it. I have a fondness for paper. Mm-hmm. But I, I couldn't find it anywhere on my on my drive. So, you know, I scanned it and, and I'll get it to them. I have to figure out what, what could we really do with it? Because I think it could form the basis of something that people, companies could go in and do it for free as long as we could gather the information and, and composite and then report it out. Because I think it would be a heck of a project. Mm-hmm. So that led to the 101 yeah. book. Did you take that to the publisher then? You told me that the publisher had other 101 she did. type of books. She did, and she was very excited because back in those days, uh, Ron Zemke was one of her was one of her published authors. He has since passed, uh, but he was he was the guy in in customer service back in those days. So she wanted books that would go that would fit well in that genre, and so I was able to write a book which followed in his footsteps, which was really wonderful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then what happened to your business as a result of that book? Well, I don't know if it was the book or the speaking, because all the times that I did the 29 ways to keep them happy, keep them loyal, blah, 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 um, I got on the circuit with Inc. Magazine. And so I began traveling around the country. Twice a year, they had a customer strategy conference. And I think that was what gave me the opportunity to grow my business. Having the book Mm -hmm. was the credential, as you know. It's very important to have something back in those days, especially. Uh, it was very important to have something, and I think that gave uh, Inc. Magazine the courage to get me out there. And I'll tell you, it was a good run while it was while it lasted. It was fun, and my clients came from the audience because there would always be somebody who called me up and say, "Oh, I saw you speak last week, and this is broken, or that's broken, or this is not working, or how can I do this?" Mm-hmm. And one day I have to share, I haven't shared this with anyone. I'm sorry. I have a, I have a, an alarm on my phone that I'm, I thought I had disabled. It keeps going on to snooze. Um, I have a breath alarm because when I, when I work, probably like you, I'm very intense. And sometimes I forget to take a deep breath. So this is part of my stress management, <laughs> except when I it goes off during a webinar. So I apologize. I can't th- get that quite far away from me. Maybe I can... Um, completely i thought i had disabled it but it it reminds me now and again uh there we go (laughs) oh my goodness um so uh now where was i well we were we went from 101 to 29 so let's transition to or explain the numbers just so that people who are listening to this can figure it out 101 was because of the publisher who wanted 101. I actually wrote 132. Um, The 101 was that, but you couldn't couldn't speak 101 ways in an hour or 45 minutes. So I would adjust the numbers depending on what the time frame was. So if you wanted me to speak for 20 minutes, I'd give you 15 ways, Mm -hmm. usually an odd number. Uh, And I did that. That was my franchise. And I did it for years and years and years. All right. Then 
your next book also had a number in the title. Let's talk about that. Well, that, How that one, developed. Well, that that developed because one of the other people that was speaking at the conferences that I was speaking at was Eric Harvey, who owned a company that did these small workbooks. They were all 50 pages long. And uh, he approached me and he said, I want you to write a book for me. And the one we chose for that was uh, Building Customer Loyalty, the 21 Essential Elements in Action. And the in action part was, here are the actual things that you can do if you want to take this way of building loyalty and put it into practice. And mm -hmm. that was the best experience of my life because uh, at that point I was cocky enough to think I was relatively good at writing. And uh, they gave me an editor that was amazing. And when, and I had not had a good editing experience with the book before. So this one showed up and it was funny. I sent it to him and I said, Steve, probably nothing to do on this one. And he wrote me back and he goes, that was a good first try. <laughs> like, oh, <"What?"> okay. <laughs> and he worked with me for months uh, because the hallmark of their books was this really tight, um, f flowing, but very tight writing, very concise because every one of their books was only 50 pages. So it's a very short book. Uh -huh. And yeah. I, I got so much mileage out of that. That was amazing. Uh, and eventually I bought back the rights to both of those books and turned them into eBooks. Now we haven't talked about that before in previous podcasts. Tell me a little bit more about why you bought back the rights or was the publisher not interested in creating ebooks? Well, after a while, yeah, after a while, the titles got old. You know, the publishers have lots and lots, at least the publishers I was working with had lots and lots of titles. So um, I made the arrangement. Actually, Lakewood Publications sold the whole company, and I got sold with the company, and I wasn't getting the same kind of attention that I was getting. Uh, with the original company. So mm -hmm. uh, eventually into the contract that I had with them, eventually they said they would give me the, I think it was four or five years, they would give me the right to buy my title. And in the end, they just gave it to me, which was nice. I didn't have to actually buy it. And then I started to, they were not interested at that point in turning it into an ebook. So I did. I had a publisher uh, I did a book on nursing documentation for three editions, and when I wanted to redo to release it in a fourth edition, they let me buy back the rights, and I think it cost me like a couple hundred dollars. Yeah, yeah. And I brought out a new edition in a different format that I self-published. That was probably my first self-published book because I had I, I had a comb binding and clear plastic on the front and back. I mean, it was really something I did at the local printers, although I sold a lot of it, but it was, it was certainly well before we had the options through CreateSpace, which became Kindle Direct Publishing, to do right, right. professional-looking self-publishing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Interesting. Now, your most recent book, you've changed from customer retention and loyalty to a different topic. Tell us about that one. Well, that one, all, everything I do has a story. I, while I was teaching customer loyalty, I was up in New Jersey one day at a workshop that I was delivering for my largest client at the time. And I was talking about attitude. And I was talking about, you know, even though bad things happen in the world, we still have to have the capacity to remain positive. And 
I forget exactly how I put it, but a woman raised her hand in the back of the room and stood up and very boldly looked me directly in the eye and she said, Joanna, what do you do to stay positive in a negative world? And I was like, hmm, <laughs> good question. Uh, I answered quickly on the spot with whatever things that I had at the time. Mm -hmm. And then I said, you know what? Uh, at, the, at the time, I was doing an audio program for the client every month. I said, I'll tell you what. The next time I contact, with you, contact you will be with my next audio program. So I'm going to give you 13 things that you can do to stay positive. She said, okay, that sounds great. And so I began every month doing another 13. When I ran out of my own, I started asking friends, what do you do to stay positive? And then I got up there and ended up with, I don't know, probably about 60 of them or so. And all of a sudden, a little light bulb went off in my head. <laughs> and I said, ah, maybe I actually have something here. So I went back to the man who had originally given me the book contract, who was still my friend, still my colleague. And I showed it to him. I printed it all out, brought it to one of the conferences we were both speaking at. And I showed it to him. And he said, this is fabulous but it needs pictures. So I kept refining the book and I carried the manuscript in my briefcase. Pat, I carried the manuscript for four years. And every time I'd go, yeah, well, I was still talking at marketing conferences. Uh, my, my way, way back mar background is direct marketing. So people knew me in that environment. So I was still talking at marketing conferences. I was still going to marketing conferences and I carried it with me. And I would meet people. I met, a, I met a man somewhere along the way that did a relatively good job and had him do some sketches for me, uh, showed them to my daughter, who's an artist. And she said, Mom, they're not you. Don't compromise. Doesn't matter how long it takes. You wait until the right person comes along, and they will. And lo and behold, down here in Florida, at a direct marketing meeting, I ran into Joanne Goldsmith, who told me she was an illustrator. Mm -hmm. So she got, the, she got the manuscript next. And she started turning out pictures that were perfect. I mean, almost perfect, each one, because she, she would meditate it. She would, look at, she, would look at the, um, she would look at the content, and she'd go into a meditation, and then she would draw. Wow. So these were all original drawings. That she Everything in the book is original, yes. And there are copies on their way to you now. Our post office was closed last week. Well, I don't know why, but we use contract post offices down here. So the post office was closed last week when I went to send it. So I gave it to my assistant who took it to her town and she's going to mail it from there. But oh, you'll see, you. you'll see when you get them that they are. Um, and the reason I sent more than one is because here's what I have found with every woman that has, has, has purchased the book, at least they always come back and they always want more. They say, oh, I gave that one away. So there's lots of, you know, there's lots of pictures in here. Oh, I don't know if you can see them with the light. I can see one of the telephone. I recognize yes. that. That one's mm -hmm. called Dialawalo. Uh, they're, they're just such, such fun things that people end up giving them away. And a lot of people like to color them. So that, they like to color them. They like to color them. Yes, they're all line drawings. So uh -huh. people like to people like to color them. It's been suggested I should sell it as a coloring book, but for the life of me, I can't figure out how to do that. So it's too much. <laughs> and then the and then the title, I had called it Fifty Ways to Stay Positive in a Changing No in a in a Negative World, which is what the lady had suggested in New Jersey. 
Uh, and I had a very dear friend at the time, a woman by the name of Toby Litt. And uh, Toby's no longer with us, but she was a very close friend. And she took one look at that. She said, I would never buy that book. And I said, why? She said, because I don't believe it's a negative world. I believe mm. that it's challenging and I believe it's sometimes negative, but why would you make a statement like that? And that's when it hit me that it wasn't a negative. It was changing, it was challenging, and it was sometimes negative. So this book was printed. This is the only one I self-published. This book was printed and distributed long before I became a happiness coach. And then two years ago, I pulled it out of the mothballs and said, you know what? We're in a changing, challenging, and kind of negative world right now. Let's see what we can do with it. So I went back and had the illustrations changed where appropriate. Um, I changed the words where appropriate, and then I republished it myself. And it's been, it's been such a joy because some clients actually come in and they, they purchase hundreds of copies with their logo on the front cover, which is amazing. That's a beautiful thing. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing when that happens. And for me, it's, it's joyous because I know that people are getting the beautiful energy that resides in this book, in this product, in the whole collaboration. So it makes me feel really good. And it's certainly in 2020, still a challenging, changing world. More so than ever, I think. That's what's so interesting is that, you know, my work, especially since I became a happiness coach and then I became a chief happiness officer, people look at me like, oh, well, you know, you're nice to have, but not need to have. And I think what's happening is what I do is becoming a need to have, not just a nice to have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Tell our listener about the happiness coach, the chief happiness officer concept, because I'm sure that's going to be a new phrase for many people. Who do you work with and what it's types of things? It's still relatively new. Well, I'm still, working with, I'm still working with the same kind of companies I've always worked with. I tend to work with companies who already have an extreme customer focus. Because that's always been my, always been in the field of customer experience. So the kind of people that are attracted to my work are people that are already intensely focused on creating a great experience for their customer. And over the last, you know, five to 10 years, I think we've really started understanding that in order to create a great experience for your customer, you'd better be creating a great experience for your employee. Mm-hmm. So I think it's more of a psychological profile than a, um, than a here's company size and SIC. And right. it does, it, it's more popular in a service business, obviously, because service businesses have so much more to gain when their people are happy because they're actually physically interacting, physically or on the phone interacting with their customers. Um, but all kinds of companies. I've worked for doctor's offices. I have worked for many banks, many banks. Um, I, I did uh, all of the service uh, uh, standards for a bank here in Florida that, that it was a failed bank and they came, the bank was bought by someone who came in and just rearranged everything on the inside and got rid of a lot of people and brought in a lot of new people and then came to me and said, okay, we need service standards now. So that that kind of a that kind of an attitude that says you know we have to have we have to have something that our people can look at and say oh this is how we do it. But I've worked with everyone from you know a two million dollar health food store to Citibank. So 
it doesn't matter. I think what matters is the, um, is the emotional profile of the person that's running that company. Do they fully believe that if they provide a great experience for their employees and put all the systems in place so that the employees can then have uh, the, the, uh, the energy and the wherewithal to do whatever it takes to create a great experience for the customer? As I think about what you're identifying as the subject matter for your books, they are all related. They're, to me, they're like rings that are intersecting because retention relates to loyalty and loyalty and retention relate to how well customers are treated right. and then how happy the employees are. Yeah. The happier the employees, the more content, the more they're likely to be warm and gracious to the people who are contacting them particularly those who have complaints and mm -hmm. want to mm -hmm. feel like they're being heard. So it's, it seems to me like you've built with each of your three books yes. on a base of knowledge, but you've taken it in a little bit of a different direction each time. And if you're watching the video, I'm raising my hands up parallel to each other to show the intersections. Mm. That's fascinating. And, and this Chief Happy, Happiness Officer title, it is becoming uh, more and more popular as, as, see, we have more data now. What I study is the science of happiness. And, and I became a happiness coach 17 or 18 years ago. Uh, but the science of happiness, science of happiness keeps measuring things and the science gets better and better. So right now we can measure happiness as a KPI. So when a company wants to measure happiness, then, you want people that understand how to do that. So this title has emerged uh, and the responsibility of a chief happiness officer, well, there's two levels of responsibility. One is to just take care of your own people, you know, mm -hmm. is to make sure that you as a leader put their happiness at, at, at the top of your concerns, which means um, making sure their needs are met. You know, we all have emotional needs and businesses maybe 20 or 30 years ago weren't looking at what our employees' emotional needs are or our customers' emotional needs. Uh, but now we are. Now we're looking for emotionally intelligent leaders. And that's where all my work is going now. I'm doing, in fact, I'm in the middle of a five-part series now on women in leadership uh, and teaching positive leadership specifically to women because the, the evidence in my mind anyway, the evidence in my mind right now is that when women lead, uh, they lead with more emotional intelligence and they get better results. And that idea was spawned uh, during the COVID crisis when I realized that the, um, the countries that were succeeding in dealing with COVID the best were the countries that were run by women. And the last time I pulled the statistic on it, the death rate was six times less in the company, countries uh, that are run by women than the countries that are run by men. That's well, that's a fascinating correlation. I had not heard that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you, you know, Germany, um, Thailand, uh, New Zealand, uh, Singapore, uh, if, all, if you look at all these women leaders, the thing that they, the couple of things they have in common is that they already had well-being practices in place. So people had better health care to start with. So if they did get sick, they could get to see a doctor quickly without having to worry about could they afford it, could they take time, you know, all that stuff. 
Um, and the other thing they did is what we call in the, in the field of positive psychology is they looked for positive deviance. So what they looked for were other countries that were doing something right. They were looking at the science, not only the science happening in their own country, but the science that was happening around the world. And they were evaluating, what can I take from over here? Oh, that was working over there. Let me see if I can make that work over here. So they had a much broader outlook. Here, we're more focused and male, I'm going to go out of my comfort zone here for a minute. Um, there are certain types of male leaders that don't, they don't, they want to focus like this. You know, they, they don't want to, they don't want to take in information that's coming from the outside. I think a, a woman, uh, naturally, because of how our brains are built, we have a different bridge between the right brain and the left brain. We have a thicker corpus callosum in our brain, which makes that having an, an overview, a holistic view easier for us. I read some results from a Harvard study that was done maybe three or four years ago that showed that when women were on executive teams, the teams made better decisions. Yes, they do. They included more perspectives. Mm -hmm. The women um, were capable of leading and communicating in a way that males were not capable. Yeah. And therefore, you know, the, the lesson which is obvious to anyone who's ever worked with an effective management team that has both men and women on it is that there is a new dimension that is added by having that yes. more um, inclusive viewpoint uh -huh. rather That's than what it is. Exactly. let's just go to the bar and talk about the sports and <laughs> you know, hey, how did those uh, Miami Dolphins do in their most recent <laughs> game? You know, those types of more superficial conversations don't really get at some of the integrative decision-making that we need to make when we're involved in corporations exactly. or, or other kinds of teams as well. Exactly. And, and women, are, women are good at that for a variety of reasons. <laughs> That's how, and the funny thing about the series, this five-part series that I'm doing in conjunction with national leadership, uh, there is an anonymous donor. I know who he is, but I'm not allowed to say who he is. There is an anonymous donor who feels that we need more women's leadership and that if, um, and, and he knows that I teach positive leadership because I worked for him. So um, he wants other companies to take advantage of the knowledge that I have and get more women into leadership positions and get them leading because he experienced firsthand. You know, he's also a lot like me in his view of the world. So naturally, um, when he met me, he wanted to hire me because I was already, I was already saying what he already believed. Mm -hmm. So it was an easy fit. Uh, but he would like to see that idea that there is a different kind of leadership out there and available to more women. So he's actually, he's funding it so that we can invite women to come and not have to charge them. So we've, we've been really fortunate. It'll be over in two weeks and I don't know, we'll have to see what comes from here. And I know as the chief happiness officer that you would be happy to continue on with projects that would help spread those concepts oh. to other companies and other groups of people. Yeah. There was nothing that would make me happier or more grateful than having companies that know that this works support getting the word out there uh, so other people can learn it. 
And, you know, I, one thing I talk about a lot in all of the things I do is, is the positive spillover effect. Because when we create that positive culture, it spills over. It spills over into our families. It spills over into our communities, our customers, our suppliers. Any, what, any place we touch, we know that um, there, there are at least three degrees of connection. So if I make you feel good, you're going to go out and make somebody else feel good, and they're going to go out and make somebody else feel good. Yes. And if you, if you look at the opposite side, because I like, I was raised by lawyers, so I, I like to look at both sides of the pictures. <laughs> if you look at the statistics that come from toxic work environments, there's more domestic abuse, there's more illness, and there is more withdrawn effort because people, are, people will completely withdraw their effort if you're mean to them. Simple, right? Yes. So when you look at both sets of statistics, there's absolutely nothing to lose and so much to gain by deliberately creating this positive spillover effect in your community. How can our listener find out more about you, the services you offer, and about getting a copy of the book that we've been discussing? Oh, thank you. Um, well, returnonhappiness.com is my main website. So there's lots of information there. Positiveenergizer.com. It's my online e-course that teaches positive leadership. So I did create a do-it-yourself course. Uh, and 54 ways to stay positive in a changing, challenging, and sometimes negative world are, is that, as far as I know, all the electronic booksellers, Barnes & Noble, uh, Amazon, and I don't really know who else is out. I guess Books A Million is still selling online. So that's available um, online. Perfect. Thank you, Joanna, so much for being a part of the show, for sharing your uplifting information, giving us hope, giving us a dose of happiness in a sometimes changing, challenging, and negative world. It's been a pleasure talking with you today. It's been such a pleasure. I just appreciate the invitation. So thank you so much, Pat. You are most welcome. And to you who's listening to this show, you've been hearing Joanna Brandy talk about her experience starting with a contract to write a 375-page book, which she was able to transform that first effort into a canceled contract and a much more manageable book of 101 tips. That style is still a strong marketing model for people today. Um, even more so, Joanna, I think, than going through those real big heavy books because people have limited attention spans and times. So they're looking for ways to get the information faster in a more digestible way. Exactly, exactly. There was a term that I ran into, oh, I think I heard it a few years ago for the first time. People want snackable information. Snackable, oh, I love snackable. that. Snackable, <laughs> something that you can get into your system quickly, digest it, get the benefit of it, and oh, then move on. So that's snackables. Snackable, 101 is a snackable, 21 is a snackable, 54 is probably a snackable as well, maybe that might even be a meal rather than a snack. Mine's got pictures too. <laughs> <laughs> even better. Even and you better. can color them. For and you can sake. color them. Yeah, they're gorgeous. They're just gorgeous. That's double purpose. They're just gorgeous. And you can see by the very first one that's there, that's called 
breathe deeply, that I take my own advice, which is my, my little alarm went off because I make sure I breathe deeply at least four times a day. <laughs> I see. Well, thank you so much. And thank you to you who's been listening to this program with Joanna Brandy. I hope it's inspired you to think about putting together information that you can repurpose. You don't necessarily have to go out and interview 200 some people mm -hmm. to do the research as Joanna described, but you can take information from books that you've written or blogs that you've written or podcasts that you've done and assemble tips around a common topic. And that's an easy and pretty quick way mm -hmm. to assemble a book. If I can help you as a book coach in giving you some options and to guide you through that process, please contact me through my website at patiyer.com. And this has been Writing to Get Business with Pat Iyer and Joanna Brandy. Thank you so much. This is Pat Iyer with Writing to Get Business, and I have with me Joanna Brandy. We've just finished a podcast on the subject of her three books. Joanna, welcome to the show, and please tell our listener what he or she will get from watching or listening to your podcast. Well, I think that they'll get a perspective that just because your first writing project doesn't turn out the way you thought doesn't mean you should quit. It means we could look at any project in a creative way and make the best of it and actually turn it into something that was better than anything you could have conceived of in the first place. Perfect. Be sure to listen to Joanna's podcast. That's Joanna Brandy and Writing to Get Business to get inspired and to get a perspective on what happens when you have the same subject matter, mm -hmm. but you keep morphing it and developing it and moving it into different directions and how each of those moves led to yet another book by Joanna. And another program. Each one of them kept, kept spawning new programs. So I was able to stay out on the speaking circuit with brand new material. Perfect. Even better. That's Even better. what writing to get business is all about. That's right. Thanks, Joanna. And thank you, Pat. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Check out Pat Iyer's resources for legal nurse consultants on LegalNurseBusiness.com. Pat coaches legal nurse consultants so they make more money, get more clients, and avoid expensive mistakes. Check out her coaching program at LNCAcademy.com. Please subscribe to our podcast and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Join our community to get notified of each new episode and to receive the transcript of today's program. Complete the request form on podcast.legalnursebusiness.com. We appreciate you and your interest. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.